Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 60. That's right, Big 6-0. And we are actually, I didn't say this last time, we are now in our fourth year of recording. You know, some breaks here and there, but um, it's been a long, long time. Uh, we didn't celebrate that last time. I just forgot. So, started in 2012. Um, and I don't I don't know how many episodes of Berserk have come out since then. I think it's been six or seven. So... We really decided to start the show in like the biggest dry spell of the entire series. So that was. I was going to joke like twelve is a low number. <laughs> no, it's less than that. I think it was two twenty seven was the very first episode that we had. I think maybe two twenty six, and it's been you know seven or eight since then. I guess ten. I don't know. Fuck it. Um, today we have a special guest with us. Maxwell is joining us. He's one of our Patreon donors. One of our top Patreon donors. Had to give a qualitative in there. So, Maxwell, introduce yourself. Uh, yeah. Hey, guys. Maxwell, how I long mean, have you been a member on Skull Knight? Just roughly. I don't need, like, the date or anything. Uh, probably, like, a year and a half. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I can't remember exactly when you came on, like, what period that was. I guess that would yeah, have been the, I the think middle it was of the like, break. Right when we started, like, realizing that this was going to be, like, oh, yeah. a really long, dry spell. Yeah, that was around the time that I was going like, well, it's been 40 weeks. I guess I'll post in the thread. Uh, yeah. 42 weeks, 67 weeks. <laughs> so yeah, that, that well, probably wasn't a very active time. But thanks for sticking with us for a year and a half during all that time. But Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's fantastic. Like, the site is fantastic. And, well, thanks. Yeah. Um, is it noticeable to you, someone who's been here for a year and a half, that the encyclopedia is unfinished? <laughs> Is that like something that like even like comes to mind uh-huh. for you? I'm I'm always curious because like to me that's like a huge missing piece of our site. But maybe no one even notices that it's it's like not finished. I don't know. What's your perception of that whole thing? I mean, I haven't really noticed it. I mean, I still go on it. And good, I still good. Get some you know info, you know. But I mean, that's... I could tell that you know it's an older site or part of the site, but. I mean, you definitely really don't have me. to hold back with that. That's totally obvious. <laughs> <laughs> don't hold back. It's, I mean, I designed that thing like 03, so it's old. Yeah. I mean, I think you did a good job, so. Thank you. Um, My and... favorite part of it is how it actually goes to, like, the different eras of the encyclopedia. There are, like, different pages are actually in different styles. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it literally shows the age as you progress through it. So I actually filed away the oldest of the old sections into, like, an appendices thing, which ultimately will be, you know, erased probably eventually and replaced with better stuff. That's the plan anyway. Anyway, uh, Maxwell, I'm assuming if you've been a member of Skull Knight for a year and a half, I'm assuming you've been reading Berserk for about that long as well? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, today, in addition to joining Maxwell joining us today, we're talking about uh, Volume 15. So it's a continuation of the Lost Children section. Actually, it's a very natural continuation from the end of Volume 14. flows kind of mid-scene into uh, Volume 15. So as usual, I'll get these started with the covers. So uh, the cover for Volume 15... Uh, a couple things I think are interesting about this are the contrast between masculine and feminine forms. You know, Guts is very veiny and glossy and rugged and sharp-edged in all the visual designs here. And Roshin is very curvy and thin and, you know, flying, I guess. So yeah, a lot of visual contrast happens. Fluorescent. Kind of heat. Sorry, what's that? I said in fluorescent. Fluorescent, yes, yes. The color yeah, yeah. always strikes me because I never think of her as that color until I look at this at this cover because it's all of the same hue 
do, you know, it is, it, it, you know, it is like she's glowing because she is glowing. So I thought it was interesting. Uh, the colors, uh, Mira chose for her. And also, what you know, fact, what about the fact Puck is looking away? From the reader and showing us his ass, you know. A, I mean, that's yeah. He's <laughs> Park is an ass, literally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It is. It's, I find it. In, yeah, yeah, I was going to say I find it interesting that he's looking away from the reader. That's something that's pretty like you know uncommon for a cover where a character is actually looking on at what's happening, you know, and not you know towards the uh, you know the viewer. It's just true. I never really thought about Puck. Well, I've thought about Puck's ass before. I've never thought about his perspective in this. <laughs> But, um, you know, actually, now that you mention it, it adds a kind of a 3D element to it. Because if Puck is in the foreground looking away, it kind of distances the, our perspective of Guts, you know. So it's a nice little 3D effect happening because of that. That's neat. Yeah, I actually find it quite distracting. And I have, even before I was mentioned it, just because he also, he's, he's got very sort of casual body language, you know. It's mm-hmm. like, <laughs> he just looks like he's really like sitting back and, you know, like, whoa. Well, he looks kind of tensed up. His fingers are out. His toes are out. It's like he's reeling back, like flying backward or something. It's almost like he's sitting though in in midair. He has kind of a he's got a very Renaissance ass to him, right? Like the old, like you know, ye old Middle English paintings of people's asses. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's going to continue in the first panel here. Oh yeah. <laughs> so let's go ahead and open it up. Um, we have our preview image. Obviously, Guts fighting the insect pseudo-apostles, and I guess what's notable here is just the, the chaos on display uh, on every, you know, f- part of this panel is, you know, blood and just disarray everywhere. It's just pure chaos. It's very, kind of pretty. Moving on to the volume itself, uh, we have kind of our first full look at Roisin. I think we got a kind of a peek at her in volume 10, and then we saw her, uh, one frame of her, I believe it was, in the last volume. But this is like the – I guess this whole volume really is kind of her introduction, uh, her formal introduction. So she lands after you know Guts has been uh, destroying her minions. And she actually doesn't seem too perturbed. That's one, one thing I find very interesting about her character is that throughout this, and, and, and except for a few instances, she doesn't take much seriously. you know, And she's just acting like a kid and – of course, she was transformed as a child, so her demeanor is very uh, di- different from most of the apostles that we've seen, I think. That makes it pretty refreshing, actually, the, f- the way she acts and the whole you know, theme around her character. Uh, I think Mira really went, like, he made us a you know, quintessential you know, child apostle, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting that she is a child because... You know, I, I don't know. It seems almost cruel to for causality to put a child in the wake of this, you know, kind of evil scheme, right? To if causality manipulates humans or forces, kind of causes humans to uh, make you know dire choices like they do to become apostles. To make a child do that just seems really, I don't know. Why, well, you know. I mean, the the one behind causality in this case is the EDF evil. So I guess you know. Its name is warranted. Yeah, of course. I mean, I'm, I'm saying there's there's degrees of evil, and this just I don't know what happens well, to Roshin. Everything. I think it's perfectly apt because children are evil, so it's just the perfect alliance with the idea of evil. So yeah, that's, I, I guess. Go ahead. What you what you might say is that you know the way it's cruel is that she you know 
might not have really understood like the full consequences of everything, you know. And uh, yeah, I think you know that takes us you know too far along to her you know death. But she ends up regretting things. That's not something we often see apostles do, you know. Like they have, they fully assume what they've become. They don't they don't give a, a fuck about anything, you know. They have no regrets. At least we don't know of them. But for her, it's a it's a bit it's a specific case. She's still attached to. Where she grew up, which is a place she's known, you know, uh, running terror through. She's still attached to a friend from her childhood, and she ends up regretting her parents, you know, missing them as she dies. So I think, yeah, in that way, you know, it's cruel because she was, you know, a, th- uh, a choice was thrust upon her, which she didn't understand. And uh, yeah, in that way, I can I can agree with what you're saying. It's interesting to me that. Um it's sort of similar to the count, you know, I mean, he, except he was fully aware of, you know, more, maybe more than most, you know, the, the wrong of what he was doing. And while he didn't necessarily regret what he did, he, you know, there was a line that he couldn't cross still, even when he was an apostle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, where he sort of found remorse and, you know, not really redemption, but, you know, he, he at least didn't continue down that path. Yeah. Which is actually interesting because, like, you know, out of all the episodes we've seen so far in the story, you know, as of volume 15, you know, like you've got the Count, you've got Roshin. Of course, we have, you know, episodes like the Snake Baron and the guys from the Eclipse, you know. But, you know, on the average, you know, I think Mira actually, you know, went through some, you know, effort to make them, you know, not just one or two dimensional, but, you know, three dimensional characters, you know. And whereas, for example, at this point in the story, Zod, while he's enigmatic, he's pretty, you know, like there's not much to him, you know, not much depth because we don't actually know about his motivations or anything like that. He's just a mystery for the most part. Uh, but, you know, they are characters like Roshin as a count. You get to see, you know, you have an insight into their lives and, you know, uh, it makes them, you know, pretty deep characters. Well, we oh, do have you an want opportunity. to see break down and cry? <laughs> well, maybe he, maybe he will in the end, you know? <laughs> Well, both of these little sections from Black Swordsman to uh, Locke's Children, the apostles we see have much more of a range than some of the apostles we've seen elsewhere because we are delving into their limits and how far yeah. they'll go. To, yeah, to much more, uh, the spotlight is much more on them. They're much more the focus of the yeah. story. Yeah. It's more point. personal, I was going to say. Yeah. The focus is on them and their story. So <clears throat> we actually get a little bit of insight there into that early on uh, when uh, Jill calls out Roshin's name early on in this, in this attack, but we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. I just wanted to start it off by saying that uh, Roshin actually you know, notices that, you know, Guts is far more capable than anyone that she seems to have come across before. And, you know, she's not scared by it. She's just merely curious or interests her. She asks, uh, you know, you're, you're strong, even though you're human. How's that? Or what, how come, you know, she just has a finger to her face, like just out of curiosity. It's interesting. Yeah, and she's even smiling. She doesn't seem to be really, you know, worried or anything like that, like you said earlier. She's mm-hmm. just, you know, she's having fun. Yep. Uh, and Guts, you know, causes some knives and she... We get to see kind of the range of her, uh, I guess, not abilities, but all of her appendages, their functions. She swats yeah. these two knives away. And we see the antenna, uh, you know, unfurl. I find it interesting that actually Mura went choose to, to go for a butterfly, you know, apostle. You know, is that also another thing is like, you know, for a monster you'd assume he'd choose something, I don't know, like you know, all the other guys, you know, Zod is 
a mix between you know a tiger or lion and and a bull, and there's you know the snake and all these you know creatures, but a butterfly is traditionally you know or moth is, is seen as being more fragile or, or something like that. So I find it interesting that he actually, you know, it's almost ballsy to me to make an opposite both a girl a child. Uh, based on a moth and uh, in that kind of context, and also and playing end, as an elf actually makes her quite threatening. <laughs> you know, she becomes quite a brutal monster. Yeah, and in the end, yeah, it's almost you know the way she's transformed. Her final form is monstrous. It's uh, it's got an horror feel that you only see a few times in the series. I just wanted to say, um, I've always thought of her as the Luna Moth, Luna Moth, uh, based on her design, yeah. the, the antenna. And even the coloring. Well, yeah, I think it's uh, you know the you know the anatomy is uh, is mostly the same for all masks. But yeah, I, I remember you know the shape of the wings and, and the spots mm-hmm. and everything is pretty pretty clearly based on the lunar mass. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it's interesting. I mean, we get into some more bizarre shapes once she fully transforms. Uh, some more insect-like and just I mean all of all over the place once we see her fur her full form. But um, early on, you know, I just think her her design is very interesting. I like how her wings are attached to her head, uh, not necessarily her back and her body. It's honestly something I didn't even notice until this reread was that it's it's kind of it's like giant ears in addition to the elf ears that she has, or these giant wings that are just attached to the base of her skull. It's an interesting design yeah, choice. Yeah, her ears actually sort of go into them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. also her hair. So. And yep. it's also, I mean, it's, it's so weird. She looks almost, you know, fashionable. Like, yeah. the way she's presented, like, she's got, like, the, the fuzzy arms and the fuzz around the neck, and it almost looks like she's wearing some sort of winter clothes, you know, or something. <laughs> it's just, yeah. You know, it's just a very interesting look overall. She looks kind of chic for an apostle. Well, it's like, you know, when she became an apostle, she just asked them to put her in the today's fashions. It was, she got an opportunity to be chic. <laughs> well, she wanted to look pretty. And actually, as we see later, she can actually even sort of uh, devolve from this point into, mm-hmm. you know, and look more human, you know, than she does. In this yeah, yeah. State, she's sort of ready for, for action in this, uh, in this incarnation. Yeah. Another thing which, you know, is interesting to me, uh, which we, I think we talked about it uh, a bit in the previous episode, is the fact like Muir is not afraid to actually introduce a character that's pretending to be an ass. You know, I, I mean, I think we, we've seen over the years that, you know, this kind of thing can confuse people, you know, just, you know, same way that uh, the, you know, I told the Hoyer and Shane, you know, uh, confuse, you know, they think Guts is a, you know, Falcon of Darkness. Right. Even though he isn't. And so people, there are still people probably nowadays who think he actually is, you know, as a, a way to oppose Griffiths. So actually, I find it interesting that Mura, you know, he, like, he's not afraid to induce this kind of confusion in the reader. Like by having a character pretend to be Zen Guts and Evan Park, you know, comment on how she's not what she's, you know, pretending to be. You know, I think it's uh, not something you get to see often in, in stories, you know, in general. I think we should also commend the fans' ability to be confused, because, you know, I don't think we can give all the <laughs> yeah, credit well. to the there. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's true. But, I, I mean, yeah, just from the, the point of view, you know, you know, often in a story, an author is going to go, like, you know, there's Team Red and Team Blue. You know, those are examples, but the thing is, yeah. they're all each differentiated. And here, it's, you know, just one example, but... You know, he actually, he doesn't mind just, you know, throwing in this kind of confusion, this kind of stuff where you have to follow the story very closely. You know, I mean, 
reasonably closely to actually understand what's going on. You know, the yeah, same goes sort of for exploring, medicine. Yeah, uh, exploring the nature of fairies here, you know, or at least questioning it with, you know, Puck being, you know, he just his initial reaction to her is sort of this one of disgust, you know, like, that's an L. He just can't believe it. And so you've got, you know, yeah. Guts doesn't really know. Although he kind of figures out quick, you know, that she's just some sort of insect and he insults her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's when, that's when they start acting like children, which Puck, I think, is the only one to really pick up on it right away. Yeah, yeah. It's actually interesting that he's the one who notices the, the you know, fastest that they are actually human, you know, human children. Yeah, and of course that kind of colors this whole volume, right? Uh, you know, Guts taking out all these things and then, you know, the consequence being laid right on top of him almost immediately after the scene. Uh, yeah. He's killing children and, and you know, uh, it's very brave of Mira to do that. You know, drawing mounds of burned children bodies and kind of like that died while their arms were outstretched. So just It's very chilling of a yeah. decision. Anyway, we're kind of jumping all around, but just to kind of carry the narrative forward, right as Puck realizes that the elves or the fake elves kind of feel like human children to him, before he can interject, you know, where Sheen is darting down to Guts and Guts takes a slash, but he realizes that he's been struck, actually. He has a kind of a pierced by her antenna, and what's kind of actually cool is as it's recoiling on her head in the following panels you can see a little bit of blood you know how far it went through his arm a nice little detail yeah yeah and uh you know he doesn't realize it immediately but he's been poisoned and so it kind of makes his movement sluggish and he has to counteract it later on so there's a kind of a you know tertiary problems of dealing with an insect apostle have the ability to poison well it's also interesting because uh i mean i think this is one of the few characters that really impresses guts with you know her speed you know Mm. i don't think he expects her to be so formidable and, you know, they really get across the fact that she is incredibly fast. Yeah. And I like her, you know, right after she's beating, you know, <laughs> like in this very specific sparring scene. And she's just, you know, yelling in the sky, you know, <laughs> turning around in circles. Yeah, you, you know, know I, she, got, she just, I got you, you know. And like, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, Puck tries to intervene here. And it's actually one of the se- one of several times in this volume where Puck tries to kind of get Guts to stop, and Guts doesn't take too kindly to that. You know, it happens, I think it happens two or three times across this volume where Puck's trying to get Guts to listen to reason or to hold back from his crusade, and it's just not really taking. Guts warns him several times to back off. Well, when he eventually, yeah, because, I mean, Guts is pretty much telling him, you know, to either, you know, get out of the way, get lost, and shut up, and, you know, Puck finally gets it out that they're kids, and that actually, you know, gets his attention for a moment. Right, and, and then we, and, that, then it, and then it kind of focuses on them, you know, acting like children, mm-hmm. and makes it clear. Yeah, and it's I find it interesting, like, you know, when this, you know, all these volumes start. I mean, the previous volume starts. Uh, we actually get maybe a few glimpses of the fact uh, guts and Puck's relationship has evolved a bit. But here, when you actually see, you know, like, there's a bit more in the previous volume where they are, how to say, <clears throat> arguing, you know, to each other and everything. But when actually Puck grabs, gets here and yells and explains things to him, I think it also shows how their relationship has evolved, you know, uh, into time we actually didn't see between, you know, the Black Souls Monarch and uh, uh, New York. <clears throat> you mean the fact that you can actually get Gus to listen to reason for a moment yeah. instead of just pulling yeah. him off, yeah. Yeah, he's actually like you get you get to see that Gus actually 
listens to him, you know, even though he has to really push his issue, but Gus actually gets to listen to, to anyone, which is not something he would have necessarily done during the Black Souls Monarch, you know. Right. So um, <clears throat> immediately following that moment where, you know, Guts, uh, they're kind of exemplifying how they're children. Um, Roshin seems to notice something that's happening. And I'm wondering, does she see Puck and she says, don't talk to humans on your own like that? Is she mistaking her own elves for Puck? What's what's going on with that transaction there between them? Do you see what I'm talking about immediately after the panel where she's yeah, kind of, yeah. I, yeah, I know what I know what you're talking about. But... Says, that's what we call PCAF, the outcast. And I, I don't, she kind of notices guts for a moment. I, I wondered if she had spotted Puck and thought it was one of hers getting she's, close to a she's human. Definitely, she's definitely talking about Puck, but okay. the problem is I'm not, I'm not sure of the translation here, actually. She definitely targets Puck. Is is what it comes down to, and she's mentioning you know Peacock the story, mm-hmm. but I mean I'm not sure exactly how she's referring to him. You know here I mean in the translation, it's sort of unclear in the Dark Horse one, which even if it was clear, you know you don't know that it's right. But she tells him you know don't you know basically don't talk to and associate with humans. Yeah, and she says that's what we call Peacock the Outcast. So I'm not sure if she's talking about Puck or the humans. I mean theoretically, yeah, I, about Puck. I think I think this might be a case of a mistranslation. I would have to ask Greta, yeah. but. Uh, I think she might be more reacting to the fact they are talking about her uh, like she's human, mm. you know, uh, rather than, you know, t- telling Puck not to speak to humans. Uh, that's something that, uh, yeah, I think it's probably a mistranslation. I would have to ask Quella, but yeah, it doesn't really make sense in that context. Yeah, well, either way, whatever it leads to, it leads to her basically charging down to to with the intent of hurting Puck as well yeah. as Guts. And Puck immediately, and I hope this translation is correct, switches gears and is like, kill her! Shoot her down! Yeah. <laughs> it is funny how he switches his feet like that. Yeah. Also, he's hiding yeah. behind Guts as he's saying that, of course. Yeah, he's hiding behind like, take her out! Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah it, it doesn't really make sense, you know, the way they actually translated that. Because uh, Picaf is supposed to be Roshin and her, you know, crew, and you know they have interpreted it as if it, she's referring to Puck. Yeah, well, I don't know. It happens multiple times in that scene, I mean, though. She could be referring things. to him, but maybe referring to him as an outcast elf that you know, basically in some in an ironic turn, saying he's mm-hmm. you know some sort of you know anomaly. Yeah. It's hard to say without the the original Japanese. Yeah, I don't remember, but uh, I'll check it up after we finish this. I'll post it in the thread. Yeah. I just thought it was a weird line. <clears throat> Obviously, it could be a translation, translation issue, so we'll just move on. But as Roshin's bearing down on Puck Guts, uh, right as that moment happens, Jill you know, covers up Guts and says, stop, and she calls out her name, knowing her name, and it causes Roshin to pause, and you know, uh, she ends up not attacking, holding back her attack. And it's a good thing because uh, Guts is actually at her mercy because he collapses in that moment from the poison and finally yeah. and first realizes that he's been affected, actually. Oh, actually, yeah. I noticed he he stumbles and Puck actually wonders, you know, what, what gives? Why is he falling? And it's obviously yeah. the, the poison's after. You know, he doesn't even have the dragon slayer up as she's coming down, so he's clearly not ready for her. So Yeah, he's not even in a position to defend himself. Yeah. Actually, you know, we talked about this earlier, but this, this visual exchange between Jill and Rasheen, I think is one of the more interesting 
parts of this as Roshin kind of like is contemplating, you know, remembering her human life, which is obviously it's dramatically different from the life that she has now. It's kind of fantasy world that she's created. So just kind of hearkening back to the memories of when she actually did have a real regular human life. And I imagine she probably thinks of those times as kind of like apocryphal, right? If she's crafted this fantasy world for herself where adults are well, all evil and humans are all, you know, basically to be harvested. I mean, from the, the beats here, it seems like she almost is like struggling to remember and then it just sort of dawns on her, like the way she says Jill's name, you know. Yeah. It's sort of a bizarre recognition. She immediately, you know, she looks at her for a moment and then she flees, you know, without another word. Right. So she's definitely having some trouble with it. Yeah. So Guts collapses and um, he realizes he's been poisoned by the dust. But And right then, uh, moron villagers... <laughs> you know, it, it does suck that their winter provisions were destroyed, given that soon afterwards comes a really harsh winter for the entire continent. So sucks for this town. That's probably it for them, regardless of what happens <laughs> with Misty Valley. But um, they blame Guts for this. And, of course, it's ironic because they're chastising Guts for such rampant destruction when, when he you know, saved he, them pretty much. Yeah, he yeah. was the only one to go out there and to do something about the attack. They're also blaming him for using the, the boy as a bait, you know. Of course, yeah. And Guts, you know, not too smartly points out that, uh, you know, not one of you did anything to help the kid, you know, yeah. for all lecturing about, you know, how evil I was to use him. Jill has a moment here where she's wondering if she should go back uh, home or not. Her mom's calling for her. And this is kind of neat, actually, because you know, she's being pulled away from Guts by the, the kid and... She's considering, and then she actually internal, internally reflects, thinking, no, I won't go back to that that life. Yeah. But of course, right then, something stands in her way, and that is the barn collapses and the bodies of the children. <laughs> actually, is it the collapses, or is it just that it, it grew children? I think it collapses children. Okay. Yeah, I guess that's what happens. Either way, a mound of bodies. It wasn't really a noise. They just, it's almost like there's just a realization, like they're looking oh, yeah. in and, uh, yeah. and realize yeah. that yeah, it's, it's full of dead kids. Right. <laughs> and and God sort of realizes like oh no <laughs> yeah I love his you know his hateful moment that he looks at this like ah oh, shit they turn yeah. back and then, you know doesn't even miss a beat and immediately takes Jill as hostage to get himself out of the situation which of course doesn't go over well with pretty much anybody including Puck who is just horrified you know visually <laughs> I like all of his expressions he's just totally taken aback by this sudden turn of events. I mean, he's smart, though, because it's like, you know, he, these people are pretty reactionary. He, it was already tenuous enough, a situation that they were going to let him, you know, walk out of there. And, yeah, this was just uh, a bridge too far. <laughs> Even as irrational as it must be to think that this guy who wandered in from town suddenly dropped off 30,000, you know, 100 baby corpses yeah, to burn it down. You, it's killed just, the, you killed 30 dead kids in there, you bastards. Like, yeah. well, clearly... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of a hard situation to explain. Like, yeah. well, you see, there's these apostles, and they can they were, transform. They were already <laughs> ready to kill him. So yeah. he should have. She should have accused the old guy of, you know, stashing. There you go. I uncovered the truth. <laughs> 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 I'm a law enforcement officer from, you know, <laughs> the yeah. federal government. Well, uh, expose. So it was interesting as Guts looks really weary here and all these panels, you know, he's looking very uh, like he's about to just pass out, you know, 
And also, he's trying to look kind of. It's like he's trying to look kind of skeevy too. Like, or it's maybe yeah. it's just a result of his, you know, sickness with with his actions here. Like when he's uh, passing through people holding Jill hostage, you know, mm-hmm. with just a, a nasty little grin on his face. Right. So guts, uh, whether intentional or by accident, he kind of nicks Jill's neck as a guy is approaching her. You know, and tells her, tells him to back off and that he could pass out any moment or he doesn't know when he's going to lose control. So the guy backs down and guts and makes his way out with Jill. But before that, right before she leaves town, you know, she, she catches, uh, Zepic looking at the situation, her dad, and he doesn't intervene. He just turns away in cowardice. Uh, and that, you know, she kind of hits home to her that no one was willing to stop, you know, this from happening, even though she knows guts isn't trying to harm her. Still, no one was willing to actually, you know, yeah, to save her. He won't even, I mean, you know, like he's hiding. You know, right. he, he like he could just stand and be nothing. He's actually hiding, so it's really yeah. He like, won't even you know? confront, you know, him and you know say anything. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. There's a bunch of there's a bunch of visual gags here, but one of my favorite in this volume is the how uh, you know Puck is chastising guts for putting a knife to a girl's throat. You know, even if it was just kind of a ruse. But she ended up bleeding, and so guts, you know, picks puck up and uses him as a salt shaker <laughs> yeah. on her neck to stop bleeding. And now she ain't bleeding, and throws him off yeah. to the side. It's just funny. <laughs> and then he apologizes as, as sincerely as guts does, you know, with his back to her, saying he's sorry about what happened, and then walks away. Um, and we bring up this this uh, dilemma that Jill has. Uh, with, with chasing after guts and really that anybody has with chasing after guts is that, you know, if you, if she says she wants to come with him and he tells her that, uh, well, basically, you know, do you realize what I'm here to do? You know, um, yeah. she tells him that, you know, that, that's, that was, I knew her, she was my friend and he says, well, I'm going to go kill that friend. So where does that leave you basically? And it's, it's the problem that anybody has chasing guts that they'll be taken into this dark path and, I think it's kind of a kindness that he's trying to distance himself from her in addition to whatever she might do or make him think to hold him back from that goal. Yeah. And the way, like he's very, you know, rough way of speaking to her. It's pretty harsh the way in, in which he, he wars it. But one might argue that uh, it's also a way to, you know, make sure she turns away you know, yeah. from following him because it is going to be hard for her. Right. It's harsh medicine. They have a nice silhouette shot as Guts walks away as, you know, Jill's reflecting, is this the end? Is this going to be, you know, is this my, the end of my encounter with this mysterious man? And she's uh, regretting that her only options are to return to the family life that she hates and the village that she hates or go into the unknown. And she obviously chooses to follow. Uh, so G- G- Puck is continuing to chastise Guts, basically saying that, you know, he's crossed, he's crossed a line here, but, uh, Guts won't even let him tend to his wound. He actually kind of uses his cape to flap him away like a bug. Yeah, Guts, I mean, uh, Puck notices he's hurt and kind of, you know, changes his tune. But Puck, I mean, I don't know if Guts' feelings are hurt or if he really is, you know, at face value. He says, you know, he's annoyed with him and, you know, it's not his pet and basically tells him to get lost. Well, I think that particular instance, it's, uh, you know, Guts is, I mean, he's, he's he's putting on a tough show, but he is hurt. But what Puck's asking him to do is like, you know, ooh, let me care for your wound. Like that doesn't kind of yeah. spoils the the attitude, <laughs> right? You know. 
Plus, well, he you know, kind of goes back into his his black swordsman routine, where he's basically talking about you know weak people and weak things, yeah. and you know elves and how he just wants to crush them. You know, he's basically he's trying to get everyone to leave him alone. You know, by being as offensive as possible. Yeah, yeah. So he holds he holds Puck and you know grips him in his hand, talking about wanting to crush him, and Puck's biting down on him with his yeah, teeth. It's a cute shot. Yeah. What is that look that Guts gives him? That very serious look. Is it like a? I guess I'll spare him. What is that look? I don't know what to make of it. I think I feel like it's you know he's annoyed. He want you know it's like he'd kill him, but he's also at the same time kind of like his bluff has been called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also part of it that you know like Puck isn't you know scared. He's biting him and you know sort of being defiant, and so he just throws him you know down because he's not gonna kill him. Yeah. I like that shot as you know Puck gives him the finger and Gus just walks away silently, just not even <laughs> not even engaging in this argument anymore. And then we <laughs> yeah. have- Puck is pushing his luck. Yeah. That's a really small ladybug, isn't it? I mean, if it's just as big as Puck's head, I, I don't know. It looks really super small. I guess maybe, it's, maybe it is to scale. It's a, it's a baby. Okay, cool. <laughs> so we have this nice cutaway shot, a silhouette shot of Guts barfing. There's a lot of – this is a really a visceral scene coming up here as Guts is battling uh, the nausea of um, losing blood and – Poisoned, poisoned, and having to hack away at babies—it's just all sorts of. Yeah, I, I find it interesting that the first thing, like you see him puking, and the first, you know, panel of the first line is the, you know, dead children that he's thinking yeah. of. So yeah, it makes you, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when he, you know, uh, let's say after Theresia, you know, was, uh, how to say. After he talked badly to her and he went away and he was, you know, crying a bit, tearing up, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I think uh, behind his facade of being just, you know, tough and everything and not caring about anything, it actually does eat at him. Of course, yeah. And this is, I mean, that one panel is is just a way for us to uh, get what's going on in Gut's head, to know that he's not a complete, you know, it doesn't, it's not like it didn't, didn't affect him. Obviously, it affected him, you know, and this is reassuring that he is moved by that. Not yeah. just being the tough guy that he's acting like. And maybe that's also why he actually prefers to be alone, you know, because because of this, that kind of stuff. He yeah. just prefers to be, like, he doesn't want to be around anyone because of this. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also the Beast to consider, and the Beast wants him to be alone as well, but so he can continue on without any hindrances. Well, that's not, you know, I mean... Not yet, I know. I'm saying there's probably a part of him that wants to be alone for that reason. So they won't become involved with people. Yeah. Anyway, um, sorry, the scene begins and the child visits him here as he's um, preparing for the long night. Uh, he's, he his brand as he goes to sleep. And I guess night has fallen in this short break and the, the child visits him in the fire. We talked about this, uh, I think it was last volume, or maybe two episodes ago, uh, Guts comments on it saying the child summoned these spirits here. He Guts becomes surrounded by the, the departed babies or the children, spirits of the children still crying for their mothers, still on fire. I wonder though, is, is that Miura telling us that's what's happening or is that Guts making a false assumption? Uh, I think uh, Guts is making assumptions that are not necessarily true. You know, uh, I, I think he has a story uh, of doing that with, with the boy actually. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm not sure. Like, why would why would he do that? I mean, except 
to make Guts, you know, reflect even more on what he's done, but I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. And I also yeah. think it can be it can be something it can be kind of halfway between the truth. I mean, it doesn't seem like the child is there to defend him either, but it could have been that he came to visit him along either because it was attracted by all those children going to meet him or, you know, it came to visit him and it, you know, inev- you know, unintentionally brought the, the spirits of those children, you yes. know, to that area as well. So, I mean, yeah, but yeah, he obviously makes the assumption it's like some sort of attack. Sure. There's also something... I can't draw a direct con- conclusion on it, but there's something thematically appropriate about the fact that the children are all crying out for their parents as they're departed and that the child itself is constantly revisiting its parents because it misses them. So it's also yeah. trapped. It's trapped in this other world where it can only visit them, you know, interstitially. I also find it interesting that, uh, you know, Mira went ahead and used the children's, you know, as some kind of specters or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, haunt, to haunt guts because of the amount of them that died, you know. Uh, right. right he, actually has to, he actually has to grapple with their deaths as a, a direct consequence of what happened. He has to de- deal with it through the night. Yeah. So what happens, uh, you know, guts blames the child and the, the children begin, you know, clawing, eh, clawing guts. They're just kind of reaching out to him and it burns him, I'm assuming. And so he's, you know, slices one in half and it causes him to puke. And that, you know, really stirs them up. And so they begin crowding around him. And then we get a shot of the demon child and actually is missing an eye at that point. It's like it's it's mimicking what it's seeing with the other children. Some oh, that yeah. have hollowed okay. eyes, you know. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that, that close-up shot on uh, his face is pretty pretty creepy, actually. How would you interpret that shot, actually? I, I always saw it as, a you know, in a way, the boy trying to make us feel guilty or I see it as a kind of a judgment, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I was about to say judgmental. Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, I don't know why, I don't know why else you would do that close focus up like that. You know, if not to imply some kind of emotion there, it's like, yeah, yeah it's a very dark kind of judgment too, like sort of the judgment of death. I mean, just the way that hollow eye, you know, staring. And so then guts, you know, of course smashes it. Yeah. The fire. yeah but he hits a fire by, doesn't look like he was actually aiming at the at the child, you know. It's hard to tell either way. It's, it's or he, he didn't hit the child in any case. Mm. Yeah, hard to tell. But I like how he just he, at that point he engages it. You know, I have to babysit brats all night while I puke up blood. You know, and then he just it gets riled up at the whole scenario, and he gets you know the next time we see him he's in a, a frenzy more so than. We've seen him in a long time, that I can recall. Actually, probably ever at this point in the series, other than volume 13 or something like that. He goes, you know, completely mad with the battle. Well, even in that, he was sort of, you know, it was a, there was, it was a controlled fury that was justified, whereas here, he's just losing it. What's interesting here is we, we cut to Jill, and uh, we get to see Guts from afar, which is one of the things that I find really interesting about Lost Children, is how we get kind of an outsider's perspective of guts as the black swordsman. And they do that from time to time, you notably in volume 18 and 19. Uh, you know, that's not just focused on guts. There are other characters and we get to see their perceptions of guts as well. But this is one of the more notable moments that that kind of technique is used. And actually, I don't think it's used in the same way. And I don't think it's merely a narrative trick so that Mira gets time to flesh out a sub character without guts taking up the spotlight. I think, Mira is kind of distancing the reader from guts as he's doing these very dark things or engage with the very dark side of his life. 
I think he's supposed to seem monstrous to us. I think in these in these scenes and towards the end of the volume as well. I think that's yeah. why Amira creates that distance. We're yeah, supposed I to agree be with refl- that. Ref- reflecting on guts. Yep, it's uh, it's also a way for it not to be gratuitous. You know, like we're not going to to see like detailed shots of you know kid being slaughtered for like I don't know ten pages. Right. That would not serve much of a purpose. You know, might be in bad taste. I mean, yeah, it adds it adds sort of a context to what's happening to sort of soften it mm-hmm. and yeah and put it in a different perspective you know where you're focused kind of on his pain right. in his struggle and also i've always just thought it was interesting that we exactly we know we know gut struggle we know how he became this person and why he's in this state but to someone completely foreign to that how, how might that look how might someone else read his motivations and his character just from his actions one thing you didn't mention is a little talk between Puck and Jill as she's, you know, going to. Yeah, so go ahead. <laughs> now I find it, in, you know, there are a few few details that are interesting, like the fact Puck mentions that, you know, as long as he's with her, she's not going to be attacked by any, you know, wild animals, that kind of stuff. That's, you know, uh, I guess a clue which we don't get many of uh, of how elves can interact with, you know, nature and other things. And we actually also get to know that, you know, Puck can feel guts, feel where he is. It's done in a, in a funny manner, but yeah, you know, it shows that he can probably feel, you know, the brand, that kind of stuff, you know, so it's not just, you know, evil spirits or anything like that, but he, you know, can also, uh, find guts, you know, he has a way to do so. And he you actually think he also, can also, that it could be he can find people when he knows them, like, he yeah, can yeah, get the sense of them. yeah, actually, yeah, that's a good point. That's probably, you know, even a more probable thing because of the way he can read emotions and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And yeah, and he has, they have a talk and he, you know, like he says so much more nicely, but he's essentially trying to say, you know, the same, to do the same thing Gus did, which is to convince her not to, not to go, not to follow Gus and not to go yeah. see Roshin. And of course she, she says she's already gone that far, so no use go, coming, going back now. But, uh, yeah, it shows that he, you know, even though he tried to do the same thing more nicely, she also already made up her mind. And then immediately, uh, they get a, <laughs> we get an illustration why she shouldn't follow him. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, it's kind of, it's really ter- terrifying just <clears throat> the way Mira zooms in here, how you see kind of like campfire from a, pers- from a distance, and then you do get a full on what's happening in that, on that horizon, you yeah. know, full right in the face. You know, the, the one where there's a boy that's, you know, you know, calling for his mother and guts. Yeah. Like, it feels like he has a very slight pause and then he just smashes him. And, yeah. you know, in a way, like, he's not being fooled because, that, you know, that's what's going on pretty much. Yeah. But, you know, it also can be, can seem, you know, very, very cruel and cold. And he doesn't, doesn't mind. There's this shot well, he of gives his, a, you know, He gives an evil grin, you know, it's yeah. like, this is yeah. like beast-like. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed, and it goes back to what you were saying earlier, the way we are distanced for the, from the character, and it shows him, you know, as uh, monstrous as he might seem to others. Because yeah. yeah, when we when we first come in, he seems, you know, he's angry and he's mad, you know, and he's, you know, you can see just sort of controlled rage, like on the the previous page, where he just looks angry and he's swinging. It's actually a very interesting shot of his face, sort of taut, you know, with anger. And then, you know, they have the moment with the child 
and yeah, that's sort of like they're making him cross a line. It's like even if it's a you know the trick kind of works either way. It's like either you're gonna you know hold back and probably take a hit, or you're going to kill you know this child you know calling for its mother, and yeah. you know, can't help after that. He's you know sort of smiling after he crosses that line. He's in a frenzy. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and he's just where it's to the point where he's just enjoying it. And like, I really love the shot of him on both shots on the next page where it's like the one that's sort of a distance where you see his face in the shadows and he just looks like, you know, he's almost mm-hmm. like some fire sprite or something just raining havoc. And then you see the close up of his face and he just looks, you know, again, he looks like, uh, <laughs> I don't know, he doesn't look human. He almost looks like some sort of, you know, elf or something or a demon, you know, like oh, pointed it, ears, you know. Like a- Looks like a villain, basically. You know. Yeah, you know, he's got you see the sharp teeth and his pointed ears, mm-hmm. and he, you know, he looks, you know, very, you know, wicked. Mm-hmm. It's also, the, of course, it's the style that's drawn in. In addition to all, all these things, are adding to it the way Mir is depicting guts in this moment. Yeah, the look that he has on his face right as the sword comes near Jill, very just bizarre, menacing look on Guts' face, very unguts face, you know. Yeah. But once again, we have this. You know, this visual uh, element here where the sword comes close to Jill's face. This happens this happened in volume 14, you know, as he was swatting at the tree. It's happened yeah. a couple times, and it happens in the future a few times as well. I think it's, I think it's a clever, if, if not a very direct, you know, emphasis on, you know, someone being close to Guts, the danger is never far away kind of theme. Anyway, yeah. at that point, Gus is able to stop his sword, which I don't know how, given that face he has, right? You know, inches well, it looks from- like he actually just barely misses her the first time, and then yeah. when we see it uh, over, sort of hovering over her face, I think he's pulled back at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of he unclear, like, what's going on yeah. there. And then he's yeah. sort of, you know, in, the, in that moment, they attack him. Right, they tackle him. Baby touch football, pile on <laughs> yeah, top of him. fire babies, though, so pretty formidable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he manages to. Does he? Uh, oh, does he roll off? I can't I tell if it's an explosion. He kind of yeah. falls on her, you know, and manages yeah. to grab her and get out of there. Okay, he falls on her, grab her, and he jumps off the the cliff as the kids just all jump on, you know, where he was in an instant. So he actually yeah. escapes death uh, very closely. It also yeah. shows that I did not actually, you know, fold them like he did. He would have been killed. They would have burned him to death. So yeah. Uh, he takes a tough spill off this massive cliff, and until morning arises, they're left alone. You know, Jill wakes up on top of him, which you know, she gets kind of embarrassed about when she realizes the scenario. And Gus tells her to get off because she's heavy. I thought that was a cute little exchange. Well, yeah, he's got like blood coming out of his mouth because he's probably probably taking some internal injuries falling down. Yeah. Cliff, you know, shielding her. <laughs> yeah, he actually can't move, uh, so he actually asks her to remove his you know breastplate and sprinkle the elf dust on him. What's interesting about this is that when she removes the armor, Guts kind of gets this grimace on his face. You kind of have to turn the volume upside down to actually read his expression in a lower panel there. But I wondered if that panel actually means, you know, he's he realizes he's involving Jill in this now. You know, even if he doesn't, uh, he kind of has to because of his circumstance. But I wonder if he's regretting that or or what that look. What did you guys read that look as? Well, well he's asking her why she's uh, why she followed yeah. him. Too. So he's sort of scrutinizing her. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Like giving, okay. Her, giving her a hard look, you know, wanting to, you know, get that answer. Got it. Well, that's a much more straightforward yeah. answer. That's better than mine. Uh, yeah. So then Guts asked directly, what is PCAF? And she explains this story or this urban legend, sort of, right? About an outcast boy named PCAF who had b- been born with red eyes and ears. 
always taunted by the children for being different. And he always thought of himself as unique and didn't associate with other kids because he was different. And so he ran off into the, the, the night into the forest and encountered others with his features. And he thought they were him. And, you know, the whole myth is about how these parents had, uh, you know, given up something to make him, to make their, their child survive. And as a, as a result, he ended up with unique features that made him different from people. And he ended up going back into the wilderness in the end, knowing that he was alone with no one like him. I didn't tell the whole story. I'm paraphrasing to move forward. Yeah, what I always wondered is, like, is this based on any, like, old folk tale or fairy tale? In our world? Yeah. I don't know. I've never really looked into it before. But, um, no, I, I think, like, Mira made up this tale to be similar to, you know, existing ones. But I don't think, you know, this specific tale is based on anything uh, that existed. But, you know, you can find elements of, uh, you know, like, for example, the ugly duckling, you know, mm-hmm. that, yeah. uh, you know, these, you know, like you can find elements that are very common in, in it. But I think the tale itself is uh, made up to fit the purpose of the story. Uh, what I find neat about this is it's a local legend. And so it's, probably has not much bearing in reality, right? So th- I think that can be confusing at first if you're trying to draw too much d- literal meaning from this parable. Like, was he an apostle? You know, I, I think it's merely meant to <laughs> be a magical tale to ch- for children. And then from yeah. that, Roisin takes meaning from it and, and extrapolates things on her own about what PCAF means. I find it interesting that even within the story, the tale is not like, you know, it can't be accurate. Sure. So... There are misconceptions well, I mean, based on. I mean, it's a it's a verbal or an oral legend, so it must have changed, you know, over the years and things like that, right? So I, I agree. It's yeah. also it, that it's probably just a story based on the existence of fairies, but there's actually sort of interesting elements in it, such as going to the the fairies to you know have a wish granted, you know, for you yeah, know the restoration right. of their child that has bearing on uh, current events, obviously. So it's sort yeah. of interesting how even though this, you know, I don't think it was intended for this to support or foreshadow that, but it's interesting that it, uh, that it does support it. And also that that magical transformation came with a cost, right? Cause that's another yeah. important yeah. thing about berserk. What, but you know, so, yeah, but, I what see, I'm trying to say is cask is going to have red eyes and you know, <laughs> red ears. after they Oh, go. that would be actually really rad. Wouldn't it? <laughs> I think the, the cost aspect of it is more of a parallel to, you know, Russian actually becoming an apostle, you know, I mean, it makes yeah, more sense in that context. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the fact, you know, like these, you know, creatures would, you know, be able to heal is, uh, you know, like obviously inspired from elves, true elves. Of course, the ending, too, is uh, is horribly depressing, as Guts points out, you know, himself, you know, that uh, he goes back into the woods. And when he goes back into town, a hundred years have passed. And so everybody is dead. Yeah. And, uh, and he's just an but, outcast. It just ends with him crying. It's actually, you know, very similar to whole old fairy tales you know were made to be they usually always ended with you know some kind of horrible ending it's a you know it's basically to serve to it was like a psa telling kids don't run away from home yeah (laughs) pretty much yeah if if you run away you'll get lost and an old girl will eat you like you'll be be eaten by a wolf or you know (laughs) yeah that's pretty much the thing yeah 
or even to like the modern day, you know, Reagan era anti-drug campaigns like you'll be a loser at school and you'll get pantsed, you know. <laughs> it's interesting how these things do carry on into the modern day. Mm-hmm. It's nice that this transitions directly into Roshin's origin because she Roshin drew so much meaning from, you know, Picaf's story. I like yeah. how they they show Jill as a child and Roshin, you know, running uh, at the top of the panel like that. As, you know, Guts is kind of Guts and Jill are down the bottom of the panel, like how that was arranged. And, you know, Rasheen's described as a kind of a tomboy, having casually holding a snake out at length in front of Jill, who's like surprised. Very cute. I guess the Mira had snakes on the mind, right? Because Guts, you know, drank and ate a snake from the previous episode, so. And, uh. Two episodes in a row with a snake. <laughs> yeah. And then never again. Among the junk that Rasheen collected, you know, was the Behirat. Puck immediately recognizes it and. Looks to Guts for confirmation, and Guts just grimaces at, you know, knowing where the story is headed. Uh, but Jill comments on how Roisin would, would want to play, uh, you know, late into the night because she she realized later that it's because she didn't want to go home because her family life was terrible. Uh, she, you know, was an abused child, obviously. But I think it's kind of interesting how, you know, Roisin kind of had warped the ending of Picaf's story as kind of a way of um, comforting herself, saying that. That's not the real ending of the story. The real ending is everything ended okay. He turns out he was an elf, you know, ended up with his real mother and father in the land of the elves. And then she had this fake half smile to cover up how she was really feeling. Obviously looking for some kind of comfort in her tough life. Yeah. And then we touched on what we talked about. Go ahead. Sorry. The little story we get about the village and how there was, you know, much, you know, pillaging and raping and, you know, like we, we explained why, you know, the Russian family was like that because she was born out of a rape, you know. And uh, yeah, I find it, you know, it's uh, commenting on what you said earlier about, you know, the fact of grain. There's winter coming, and we know it's a harsh winter because we we know the what the story goes. But we actually don't dwell often on these little things, these villages that got, you know, like passes by and never comes back to. But you know, these kind of little scenes uh, add a lot of depth to that, you know. The fact these people have realized and that what we see, how the story is shaped is because of how history and, you know, has affected, you know, uh, the land. So, yeah. Yeah, I like how it's established very briskly in three panels. And it it sheds so much light on everything we saw in the previous volume about all the different character interactions in the village, why the village is the way it is, you know, all those things. Interesting. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. And, uh, yeah, and it makes sense for her to... To think uh, those are not her real parents because that's probably what she heard her father say countless times. Right. Yeah, that shot of her is very touching. Uh, the squared off panel where it's surrounded by white, you know. And you can tell that, yeah. you know, damage is being done to her and she's just a child and can do nothing about it. So she ends up running away one, one night and, you know, she's appears at Jill's window in the, in the rain. I like how it's dramatically in the rain holding a lantern, who's, you know, tattered. Pajama clothing, obviously, with bruises all over her body. Really scary yeah. stuff. There's some she's, kind of blood, it seems, on her dress, you know, on her right. pajamas. She's, uh, she's whispering, you know, loudly to Jill that she's going to run off to the Misty Valley, the land of the elves. And she, she tells her she's, you know, bequeathing her all of her treasures as she walks away into the lightning bolt. Uh, and that the next morning, Jill found that, you know, everything was there, all of her treasures except for the Behirat, of course, which was, 
taken with her. I like how the the visual at the bottom left of the corner of that page is the Behirit kind of, you know, leading her on, which is kind of interesting yeah. narratively. Yeah. It's this weird sort of whimsical like shot yeah. of her almost walking on this like magical like Pathway, yeah. that it's leaving in. Yeah. yeah. So Jill reflects that it was after Rasheen disappeared in the forest is when the attack started on the villages and that she herself, you know, begins to identify with what Rasheen must have been going through during that age because Jill has now reached that age and she's beginning to, you know, the weary the the, the weariness of living in that village and how it can bring you down is beginning to affect her as well. Uh, and Puck brings out the Behirat, which looks just like the one that Jill saw in Rasheen's possession. And Guts explains that uh, it's something that can be used to summon angels or demons in disguise. And they can give you power in exchange for something. And just lays it out there as, you know, Rasheen sacrificed or likely sacrificed her parents to get her wish. And I like particularly... The way this is done, you know, Gus kind of being very, I mean, harsh about it, but I also like the visuals here, how as he's explaining this dark history about what the Behira is and doing so in a very harsh way, the lighting kind of shifts. So they're, they're surrounded by trees and lights kind of filtering in from above it, but it's during the, you know, the darker side of this story that it kind of covers his face and gives kind of a shading element to him. And also, it's, just, it's a weird, you know, sort of shape on his face too. The shadows make with that evil grin. He's actually being quite a good, like, god hand pitch man. Like, yeah. he's not even he's not even yeah. condemning them so much as he's trying to sort of play up the ghost story aspect. You know, and they require a sacrifice. You know, sort of thing. Like, he's trying to really scare her off and be as sinister as possible. He looks almost statuesque in that shot. You know, like. Yeah. You know, the kind of statue you would come up and grab the Beherit from, you know? Mm-hmm. Almost yeah. like, it reminds me of Super Metroid, actually. Yeah, yeah. Chozo. He's just, uh, he's he's very sort of smug and sinister in this whole uh, presentation. Yeah, I yeah. really like that panel a lot. It looks kind of like Evil King Guts sitting on his throne, holding a yeah. Beherit or something. Anyway, Guts again gives her this pitch, asking her to stand down, uh, because this isn't a kid's tale. This is a, a grown-up, gruesome grown-up fairy tale. And I actually wondered if there's some kind of meta commentary from Mira saying how, you know, his story is not a kid's story or it's not a regular fairy tale. There's some, you know, actual, actually harsh realities that grim realities as, as a result of this kind of fairy tale and his, the story that he's telling as well. Yeah, I mean, intentional or not, it does sort of describe that, like, yeah, it's going to get a lot darker, yeah. <laughs> you know, the rest of the way, which is uh, which is true. You know, like, you know, once again, the sword comes into close contact with Jill as he makes her realize that, you know, danger is nearby. And I like the shadow that's cast of her face on the, the Dragon Slayer because it kind of cuts away her bangs. To makes, it makes it look much more grim and very, like a, kind of the outline of her skull, you know, much more closer to mortality there with the visuals. Mm. And, uh, you know, she reaches out to slap guts because uh, he calls her a nuisance. Uh, kind of lays out her entire story for her saying that, you know, some kid snuck off from her loser father and a powerless mother, just summing up her life in one insult. What I find interesting is Puck is almost like, he doesn't really, you know, freak out at how sort of cruel he's being here. I think cause they're, you know, you know, he just says, Oh, you went a little too far, but I mean, they're kind of on the <laughs> same page that they want her to leave. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that it would be and, best if she were gone. Yeah. He wasn't using the softest touch. Yeah. Yeah, but then, you know, that, that's what causes Jill to, or Gus, Gus then, you know, leaves and Puck 
puts up another fight about how how Guts did it, but then he is able to. Well, I like how he's building it before Puck realizes what's happening. That's really cute. He's building this like you know imprisoned <laughs> prisoner yeah. rocks for for Puck because he knows the last time it didn't work. He just tossed him aside. That obviously didn't work. So he's got to take an extra measures this time. So he builds like a little you know prison, and uh, Puck wonders, "Hey, hey, what you doing there?" <laughs> <laughs> Drops him in there and. So he yeah, nabs him and tosses him. What's interesting is I think how Guts, like the kill shot here is when Guts pretty much sums her up, you know, as being like, you know, you, you know, this ain't your escapism, you know, get your own fairy tale, stick to, stick to peek off. Yeah. He says, basically sort of calls her out for like, don't use me as, you know, some way to get away from, you know, your crappy life. This ain't, yeah. this ain't, you know, uh, a good escape. Yeah. Well, he recognized it for what it was, and that is what yeah. she, that is what she's doing. I mean, she has good reason for trying to uh, escape her scenario, but it's not a reality that she can really deal with. Guts' reality is is much worse. Yeah. So at that moment, I think it's actually kind of nice that you know, right as right as Guts you know walked walks away, uh, Roshina arrives, pays her a visit, uh, swoops down very dramatically, like like a helicopter is swooshing dust and stuff away. And, uh, the two friends are reunited because, you know, she does something that, you know, human Roshin might do, which is puts a frog on her head, which I thought that was pretty funny. Kind of a callback yeah. to when they were kids. Especially since Jill is, uh, she's afraid, you know, she doesn't know what's going to yeah. happen. And then it's a frog and, and Roshin just laughs. Yeah. And hugs her. So, yeah. It's cool. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it kind of cuts cuts right to the heart of the matter is that, you know, Rasheen does remember her as her friend and they are still friendly. So there's no, there's no drama here. You know, the fact that he's now an apostle, she remembers her fondly still, but guts, uh, brand begins to bleed on the following page. And I think it's nice that I, I can't remember an apostle that has more forms or more layers of forms than Rasheen. You know, she has like her super apostle form, which you see her transformed in volume 16, and we saw her earlier, and then she has this other human form in addition to that, yeah. you know, much more human looking. Or, and it's like, I wonder if she ever even would go into that more human form before she met Jill, just because, you know, she doesn't even seem to remember to do it beforehand. Mm -hmm. And it's like, she's come back as almost a completely different kind of, you know, she's obviously reconciled her memories of Jill, you know, before there was this cognitive dissonance where she kind of recognizes her and then has to fly off. But now she's completely committed to, you know, Jill, you know, we're best friends. I remember right. you. And she's now she's going to try to incorporate her into her little fantasy world. I mean, it's just what she's doing. And we realize later she's making a pitch for Jill to join her in the Misty Valley as, you know, one of the one of the children. One of her. And of course, she's very susceptible now that Guts is, you know, kind of dumped her and left her vulnerable here. Right, right. But uh, it's nice. I, I like the way she acts, very playful. I like, you know, even her character design is just unabashed, unashamed, you know, just her breasts just out there, no attempt to hide them with any, you know, superficial webbing or clothing or insect. And it's just, just out there, just like a child would be. Yeah, I mean, there's like no shame. It's like a kid taking a bath. And exactly. I mean, she's also, I, even her, the way her hair has become more like hair and her wings have become more, you know, they look less like moth wings and more sort of like translucent, you know, just uh, more like pucks. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so she's making, as I said earlier, you know, Rasheen's making a pitch for Jill to join her in the, in the Misty Valley. 
And uh, I like how she signals to her troops that, you know, Jill's all right. She's allowed. And they all signal her in unison, you know, like army soldiers. <laughs> and then, you know, she takes her up into the sky. Uh, she has this exchange right before they go up into the sky. She says, it's a fun place. You, you and I can play and have fun all the time, even after the sun goes down. And their faces and lips are so close in that moment. I wonder if it was an intentional double meaning or not with that. Oh, come on. Of course not. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I, the, the, the paneling makes me think that in addition to, well, I mean, in my mind, it's like, it's the wording is the little thing, but I think it means, I think she's referring to their abuse, you know, <laughs> essentially that, you know, mm. when the sun would go down at home, that's when, you know, their parents would get drunk and abusive. And I think she just means that they can play past bedtime, you know. Pretty much, which is just... That's a more simple and... Uh, that's a plot. That's yeah. A very, it's like Occam's Razor says that's a, that's a good explanation because the problem is we have this weird translation. This is even after the sun goes down, which, yeah. Well, it, that, it that, that well phrasing, be, the phrasing yeah. has connotation. Yeah, you know? it could, whereas that could very well be a translation of a something that was originally just saying, you know, staying up late, you know, yeah. essentially. We let's don't just, know. Let's just leave it alone. Yeah. It just, that's what struck yeah. <laughs> me based on this translation. Anyway, I like this, actually, this panel here, I won't say harkens back to, but reminds me of in volume 19 when Guts is r- dashing to rescue Casca. We see him, you know, dashing through the woods. There's this dark figure, uh, you know, racing towards the impulse of the brand. And I, it's actually, you know, manages to break away right as she takes flight. And, uh, you know, bears down yeah, her with the out slayer. above them, you know, he's yeah. a very cool shot, actually. This is like a contender for, you know, the entire volume. Yeah. And, of course, it's, you know, this, the poetry here is uh, is telling just because, I mean, he looks like this monster, you know, up in the air about to strike down. And you see in both the panels of Roshan and Jill, you know, it's almost like she's, you know, a mother holding a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and the innocence on their face, you know, and the way she's embracing her. Yeah, they look so innocent, actually. Yeah. yeah you're right. Uh, visually, this is very dense uh, storytelling and kind of situationally, thematically setting up, you know, this section of Berserk. You know, really tells quite a bit. You know, this dark figure, you know, breaking up this happy reunion because he knows the nature of this being to begin with. Where and it doesn't look yeah. like he's holding back, but of course we find out later, you know, Guts sort of inner thoughts on the matter is that, yeah, he did, you know, he could have sliced both of them in half right there, but he did hold back and he just sort of nicks her. And in that same moment, it reveals the true nature of Roshan as she, you know, her face yeah. back to being, you know, monstrous. Yeah. It's a that, pretty terrifying moment. That's an interesting thing. You know, the fact that like she looked human, but it was, you know, that was a pretense, you know, and yeah, that's, he, he breaks the illusion. Yeah, her real face is that, and uh, that obviously scares Jill. Yeah, <laughs> as it is a it's a neat moment when her she's screaming and she looks down at Jill. You know, it shows her true face like that. Yeah, signals her troops and her troops transform. You know, trying to immediately start the fight, but Jill calls it off, saying, you know, using her name. What's interesting is Jill is at least uh, she's in hindrance to both of them. You know, it's like she mm. is she is caught in between. You know, yeah. she saved Guts earlier, and now she's saved Ro- Roisin. And, I mean, it's it's interesting how this sort of goes back and forth. There's almost this proxy war <laughs> for her in this whole thing. Or at least Guts is trying not to harm her. And she's sort of the shield for both of them. Right. Uh, you know, and then they fly off, thanks to Jill's intervention. And 
once again, Puck and Guts are at loggerheads over this, over Guts, you know, acting like this in front of a child. Wondering if he actually meant to kill Jill, which you've already addressed. And once Puck flies off, you know, Guts does reflect that. Did I hold back? You know, he probably did, yes. That's the implication. Yeah, I mean, Puck confronts him and Guts' attitude is, yeah, literally the translation in the Dark Horse volume is, so what if I did? You know, he doesn't really say whether he did or not. Because, of course, he wouldn't want to give away that, you know, (laughs) that he was holding back, potentially. Puck really lays into Guts here and... You know, it's interesting that the previous two times Guts has had to intervene and throw Puck away or build a prison for him. But here, you know, Puck leaves of his own volition. He's just yeah. so disgusted by Guts' actions that he just doesn't want to have anything else to do with him. But, you know, that doesn't last long, of course. But, uh, you know. <laughs> but my favorite thing is when he calls him, like, the bastard swordsman and Guts oh, yeah. really doesn't – Guts does not like that uh, designation. Yeah, the text above his head. Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, after two times where, how to say, Guts pretty much just ignored uh, what Puck was chastising him about, this time he actually does seem to reflect on, you know, on everything, looking at the cut parts, you know, from uh, Roshin and everything. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> to me, that's actually one of the, this is a sort of a weird, silent, poignant moment where he's, you know, he's analyzing, you know, whether he was holding back and sort of, even though that's a more decent thing that he was, it's troubling to him because, you know, it raises questions about his life and, you know, this path that he's chosen, mm-hmm. but just him standing there next to her, like cut off parts, you know, in the river, it's just, it's a very strange and cool scene. Yeah. yeah. He's yeah, reflecting on, on his choices. Yeah. Right, he's taking stock of who he is. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's just, it's just weird to me. I mean, I, I just love the pieces of her just sort of there on the shore. Yeah. So uh, Roshin takes Jill high up into the clouds, seeing a sight that no human could ever see. Well, until the Wright brothers, but um, <laughs> really, I love the visuals here. You know, I, I've said before that I love Miura's scenery, and rarely has it ever been on such display before. As in these episodes, these these in the next few, just gorgeous landscape shots, um, high above everything, flying over everything. I guess he kind of set the tone for those shots early when they were introducing lost children. Uh, that narrative element when he was fighting the tree, that little interlude. We got a kind of a peek at the scenery there as well, and you know he scattered them throughout this section as well. So I've seen it before, but it's cool. And Jill remarks that her village is so small that she can't even see it. You know. Such as something that you know has consumed her, her life, her complete life, and now this this vaster, different world out there. It's pretty much you know music to her ears, uh, given all the troubles that she's had and where she is in life right now. Yeah. And uh, Rushin makes the pitch that you know you can fly all you want to your heart's content, Jill. That is, if you become one of us. And that's where we're going to leave it today, guys. Um, we don't have enough time to finish up volume 15. I really thought we could do it, but uh, obviously no. So Not bad. We did half of it. Half of it. It's a pretty good standing stopping point because from here on out, it's Guts versus the Insects. And it'll be a totally different take from there on out. So come back and finish up volume 15 with us in a couple weeks. And thanks, Maxwell, for tuning in. And thanks for your donation. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Of course, man. All right, guys. Um, any other berserk news happening? No. Yeah, well, I mean, you tell me. <laughs> no, there's nothing's happening. Uh, I can't remember if I said it last time on the show, 
but we're in, currently in the second longest break of the series history. How long until it's the longest break at this point now? It will be an additional 20 weeks until we reach that point. Oh, wow. Yeah. So. Yeah. 67 weeks is the longest point. I think we're in the 40s right now, maybe the 30s. So I it's can't like no, not guaranteed at all that we're going to make it, which, you know, it's not something I'm rooting for. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, <clears throat> everyone that's following the series at this point knows, but, you know, right before we uh, – I think it was 336. Whenever 336 landed, there was that note. It was in August that said, Berserk is published as an irregular series, a young animal. And, you know – at the time, we didn't make much of it, which is like, yeah, no shit. You know, it's been this way for more than a decade. Like, duh, of course it's a regular. But now I'm, I'm thinking more and more about that line. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, now it has been a long time. At the time, it didn't bother me. But now, like, maybe they saw something coming. Maybe they were like, oh, shit, you're planning a 50-week break? We need to give them a little more heads up about that or something like that. You know, well, but, I mean, if it was as irregular as it was when it was on a set schedule, for them to acknowledge it, you know, at yeah. the time we think about it, it was almost sort of acknowledging what was already happening. But in this case, mm-hmm. it seems like, oh, by the way, it's going to get a lot more irregular. <laughs> I guess it was just weird and I didn't know what to think about it because it happened at 336. And then about four or five weeks later, 337 came out. And I was like, okay, whatever. You know, it was irregular and then another episode came out. But then, you know, now we are where we are. So, well, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make too much of it because Mura's been like he's he said in his comments that you know the publish you know publication would be irregular. You know, yeah. he said so several times. I think two yeah. or three times at least. Mm-hmm. And well, also, uh, yeah, uh, Gigiomachia. If you count those episodes, and plus they were a lot of those were almost like double episodes mm-hmm. to the total that's come out. It's not as uh, slow a production. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, the, the point is, uh, you know, like they've acknowledged that it's, you know, irregular, but, you know, I mean, honestly, that's, you know, not something I would put too much, too much, I would put too much stock, uh, you know, in or on or whatever. The thing is, you know, it could, I don't think it means much. Well, it, it being the only statement we have on the circumstance, it makes sense to question it a little bit, but I know what you're meaning. In terms of yeah. taking it with a grain of salt and putting it in context with reality, I, mean, we're not, I, I don't think we're reading too much into it. We're just sort of reconciling it with the the situation we find ourselves yeah. in. That it's like, yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah, Hopefully- and like I've, I've addressed this on on Reddit as well. It's like every couple of weeks, someone will ask. Actually, like every couple of days, someone will ask. You know, where's uh, where's the new episode? Why isn't Mira doing anything? And like, so I was thinking like. Mira could give a statement. He could say something, but say he gives a statement. What's he going to say that's going to like fix everything? Yeah. Keep waiting. I'm still working on Berserk. Like, yeah, everyone knows that. So like he, he's in a difficult situation. If he wants to do the series as his, at his own pace, there's nothing he can say that would appease fans except for here's 338, you know? And well, he's actually is also that he's probably working on a slew of episodes that are all going to come out relatively quickly in well, relation to each other. Even if you know, it's almost not, like it's even seasonal. if even if it's not, say it's say it actually say it's the worst case scenario, and it is taking him this long to do an episode, which I don't think that's the case at all. What I mean, that's his it's his fucking right as the creator. You know, it's yeah. not like he can say it's not like he's going to say anything that's going to fix the scenario and make everyone you know make it more that's palatable. The, it is it is what it is. You know, owns it. I think we've, we we have done it. I have seen it on the board. The oh, I hope he doesn't die before he can finish it. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Which is that's I'm sure that's his chief concern too with dying. <laughs> I was just thinking. I was thinking of like how how can fans like explain this or rationalize this. 
Like, cause I mean, you just kind of have to take the situation for what it is. I mean, it's not, it's, it sucks that we don't get more berserk, but as fans, as, as the situation is what it is and nothing Mira could comment on would change the circumstance. It could say, yeah, I'm well, angry, but you thing is, bring out has... soon or I'm going to stop complaining about it <laughs> yeah. all the time. <laughs> That'll show him. He has commented on it actually quite a few times in the past, mm-hmm. you know, even oh, when he was making you know, Gigantomachia, he said, this didn't mean he wasn't still walking on Berserk. And before that, he said he was, you know, like a few times he was sorry that it was taking so long, but that, you know, like walk wasn't going. So it's not like he's never made any statement about it. But yeah, like you said, what, what's it going to change? You know, like yeah. he can say, oh, sorry guys, just, you know, I'm walking on it, but yeah, you know, it's exactly. Not yet. Exactly. And the most you could say is, I'm working on Berserk, which is like, yeah, we know. Which <laughs> is know? kind of self-evident. Yeah. yeah. So. so I think you should make trolling statements like, you know, it's like, I'm I'm not sorry. It's taking a long time. <laughs> like, Yeah. So like, well, where do you think I'm we're not going to go with the next episode? Oh, you're asking what will the content of 338 be? Yeah, like... Ah. Oh, uh, we're well, sworn on that. I I have one idea and Azil and Griff. I yeah, think, I think I have another. I think that's it for Fal. No, no, sorry. I think there's one more episode. <laughs> ah, you reveal your true mind. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you brainwashed me. <laughs> I know you got. It's like the old duck season, rabbit season trick. You got you to reverse. Yeah. It, I, my my immediate reaction was Azil's reaction. No, um, I think there's one more. I think it makes sense for there to be one more. And, uh, it's the, 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 my basis for that is pretty faulty, admittedly. It's that I will, I hope we learn a little more context about what happened to those guards in that one panel, which I know is super tiny. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but I feel like, I feel like it's a potential for something to happen there. Like, for example, if someone else witnessed Rickard's slap and was interested in his motivations for doing so, that could open up a whole new story thing. Maybe so. Mura is watching the Slap miniseries, and mm. that is inspiring and informing the next episodes to follow the aftermath of all that. There you go. Probably not. Well, I, this, I'd like this... to stay in... I mean, I'm going to be happy either way. If they stay in Falconia yeah. and deal with the aftermath <laughs> of that, that's golden. If they switch back and... I mean, well, the danger if they switch back is it's like, I really want it to be like, hey, we're here! <laughs> you know, yeah. but it's probably going to be like, uh-oh... Look at it's more pirates. What are we gonna do? No, I think I think I think the end of the first episode back to Gus's side will be them seeing land or something like that. The oh, end yeah. of the episode, not the beginning, but prediction. Very yeah. bold, yeah. isn't it? No, I've been saying that shit for fucking seven years. No, no, but I think it's pretty, it's pretty clear that uh, whenever we cut back to Gus, they'll be arriving at uh, her farm, or at least at Skellig, you know, the island on which yeah, it is situated, yeah. but. Uh, you know, I think, yeah, you know, regarding the guards and everything, of course there's stuff, you know, like, I, I think that's going to be addressed in the future, but, like, I don't, I don't feel like it needs to be immediate, you know, it could be. Well, and, it would and be, unless it's gonna be something huge, it would be weird not to sort of deal with it now. Mm-hmm. Is, I mean, I guess that would be my, like, uh, my argument in favor of, you know, nipping that in the bud before we move on, unless it's gonna be something where, more guards have disappeared at a later time and they sort of, you know, reveal well, it then I, otherwise. It also, I mean, if we don't know exactly what the aftermath of the slap is, it would be a, a hanging thread that would be very suspenseful, but it's not like Mira yeah. hasn't done that in the past, you know. It's just, it'd be... Yeah, uh, that's actually, I think there's some, an argument in favor of not showing it in that we don't know what's going to happen and when we cut back, uh, you know, like that, that suspense. And regarding good, the guards... It's a good leaving point, and, and if that's not the leaving point, you have to wonder, 
what's going to be the dramatic buildup for the leaving point if that's not it? I, I get that argument. Yeah, sure. It could, but it could be just be. I mean, imagining uh, it goes back to you know we we get one more uh, Falconia thing. Uh, it could end with just Rickard walking away, and you know people either him reflecting on something or someone else, you know, like I don't know Charlotte or something reflecting on something. But it, yeah, it would be less suspenseful. As for the guards, you know, we we could always. When we cut back from Guts, we could, uh, you know, take on the point of view of, I don't know, Silat or someone like that, that's infiltrating the castle, you know, and, uh, yeah. still in the process of it and witnessing, you know, nefarious, you know, doings mm-hmm. and, uh, from inside. So, uh, you know, the, I think there are many possibilities. It's hard to imagine it being no- more nefarious than what was going on under Ganeshka <laughs> than the things that he witnessed there. <laughs> Like, yeah, unless, it's a good point. Like, what does he? What does anyone hope to learn from going behind Falconia like that? I mean, it's just an, it raises a point about what is that? What is the other force at work? You know, I mean, the worst thing achieve? we saw was uh, the arena yeah. with uh, yeah. the apostles killing, you know, ogres and such. But you know, that's that's actually pretty quaint. <laughs> oh yeah, that's like uh, that's yeah. formalized yeah. murder. <laughs> yeah, this is just this is just a, these are guys. These guys are just having a good time. This isn't like some bizarre breeding grounds, you yeah. know, <laughs> rape and death, and you know, oh my god. Still, that's going to go. Well, I guess I made the wrong choice. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> is it too late to join? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, you know, yeah, I don't think, you know, like, I mean, it's pretty clear to me uh, that there isn't going to be some kind of horrible, yeah, you know, Dakar machine uh, under, you know, the throne room or anything like that. Uh, I think it's going to be a bit more, you know, <clears throat> high-minded. Yeah. yeah, the way things are going. But, you know, but it's going to be something that's actually far more probably destructive, you know, ultimately. Yeah, I, yeah. I've, I've for for months and months now, I've been thinking... The sinister part isn't some overt scheme to kill everyone necessarily. I think it's more like now everyone is under lock and key of the God Hand, basically. You know, yeah, the, uh, well, not destructive, oh, in, literally destructive, but just sort of like enslaving the world, you yeah. know, to, or yeah. Yeah, to their will. Enslaving the only viable structure for humanity under the God Hand's will and the yeah. Apostles' you know, will, you know. You know, a, a parallel could be made between that and what, uh, like, is going on in the real world where, you know, like, here, uh, people, like, every, you know, human beings, uh, they have no free will anymore, you know, because they are under that rule in many different ways. And meanwhile, uh, <clears throat> the apostles and the, and the god are just systematically, I guess, slaughtering everything in the outside world. I don't know if that's how it will go or not, but, you know, it can, it can be taken as some form of parallel to what damage, you know, humans are doing to the world, you know, uh, in real real life. <clears throat> I really thought you were going to make a Google joke right then. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I mean... It goes without saying. It, 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 could, be, uh, it could be the motto of the God End as well, you know. Don't do evil. <laughs> don't be evil. <laughs> That's actually a cool, it's a cool point, though. I never thought about that being... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I actually really think that will be uh, mechanisms that will come uh, to play, you know, later on in the story. The fact of, you know, the human-based power against the elemental power, you know, yeah. what uh, the elves and everything else uh, embodies. So, and I actually, I'm not, I'm not past the "don't be evil" point, which is like, yeah, you know what? That really would be like a god hand kind of phony saying. What sort of, <laughs> sort of association has to have that as a credo, unless evil? Is a very attractive option. You know? 
viable. There's also another thing we need to consider is that when Ganishka unleashed, you know, that wave of light over the world, uh, it's something he had taken from, you know, uh, the death of the astral world, but mm-hmm. I think we can assume it was evil power. So, you know, a question is, did that color the way, you know, the world became like, did that make the, what says, the astral creatures present more evil? Like, you know, I don't know, instead of there being, you know, 70% unicorns and, you know, uh, 30% hydras, did that turn it into 80% hydras and 20% unicorns? You know, that kind of well, that's stuff. interesting. I mean, I mm. guess it just depends on, you would think that all that is, uh, you know, evil power. But yeah. was it, is it evil or is it, you know, in a sense, the way it worked, was it just supernatural? Was that yeah, the effect that it was uh, having? That's was sort it- of how I've always thought of it. And actually, I've never thought of, if, if you think of Ganeshka being a giant water balloon and that the contents of him were spread across the world, that's not necessarily how I've always envisioned what happened with the wave. I've always thought of it merely as the collapse or the implosion of what was inside him caused the barriers of the world to shatter and that these superseding worlds, the the barriers between them suddenly evaporated. And so all these worlds came into being in the one place. Yeah. The worlds worlds were what they were, but now they're all, you know, interact at the same place in the same moment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, it's an interesting thing to sort of think about either way. So that's a long answer to Maxwell's question about what's 338 going to be. <laughs> it's going to be everything. It's gonna, there's the future of the series. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you think, like with The Lost Children, like do you think we'll ever get like a self-contained story? You know, I like hope a so. Like Ganon Berserk, you know, like how with Jill and stuff like that, but like with, you well, know, Guts I mean, and arguably, I mean, like the, the we kind of did with the island. Yeah, the solitary you know? island is, uh, yeah, yeah that, that little story is pretty self-contained, I think. Yeah, that was a self-contained little horse story, and I mean, yeah, yeah true, things, true. Yeah, where they fight, where you even get a a god at the end to fight. That was that was yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah and, and I and I totally got to think that you know I I wondered when when that was going on if Mura was doing it because like it might be the last opportunity for it to happen. You know, mm. like maybe yeah. I, I don't know if it's the case or not. Maybe he'll have more occasions, but you know. I, I think you know the story will accelerate a bit, you know, uh, going forward, and uh, I'm, I'm not sure there will be another occasion for that. But uh, it's, I mean, it wouldn't be, be much nice. different from everything before that. I mean, from when he went to the Holy Land and one thing leading to another between Griffith's rise and his, you know, getting his family together on Gut's side. Sort of that was, you know, the first opportunity to sort of like, okay, we've got these guys all together. Let's do something that's, you know, kind of a little bit on the side. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know yeah. they're out to sea. Let's have them, you know, do sort of a little side story. Yeah, because I mean, you know, like, uh, you know, it's like they reach Elfhelm and Casca gets cured, and but it's like, you know, what's going to happen in between, like, you know, possibly the final like battle with Griffith. You know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, are they just going to like go on the tree and just go to Falconia? Or is it, that's know. that's the element of the story. That's actually you know the section of the story I, I really have very few ideas for. That's really yeah. kind of up in the air. Like I can kind of sketch out in my head how we go from where we are now to Casca being back with the group 
to Falconia having spread across the world or the, you know, the influence of Falconia having solidified in the human world and on the continent. But I don't know how those two worlds come into collision. Like where is the leaving the, the, you know, the party leaving Falconia? What's the yeah. motivation for that part? That's, I mean, it could be a number of things. I don't really honestly, I also think it's hard to say, you know, cause Mira can sort of, you know, spread it out as much as he wants. I mean, he could have, if he wanted to had guts reach Elfhelm, you know, two episodes after Puck says, hey, let's go to my homeland, you know, and it could have been sort of like when he went to the Holy Land, mm-hmm. you know, you have a couple of episodes that like sort of show him on his travels and then he's there. But obviously he's, you know, they, they've gone 10 volumes plus. Well, they diversified the party. They expanded the scope of the world and they introduced they all these countries and the so Holy See. Yeah. And he could do, and they could basically come around and do that again on the way back to the final battle. So mm-hmm. it's like there's no guarantee it's going to be like, oh, we're at Skellig and Elfhelm, and now it's time, you know, from here. Yeah, that's no, exactly, exactly. Like, you know, if we if we sketch out Berserk being sixty seventy percent complete according to two thousand nine, I don't know what happens between eighty and or even ninety and a hundred, even eighty and a hundred maybe. So yeah. I don't think they will go directly from Elfham to Falconia, but yeah, yeah, there will be a there will be a form of accelerated travel. You know, they're obviously not going to, you know, take the boat again, yeah. go on, you know, see adventures again. That was something. I think I think you know it, it was cool of Mira to do that, and I think it fits within the overarching you know uh, way he's built Berserk to be you know some kind of the ultimate fantasy adventure you know yeah. but uh and, and i think there are opportunities with fantasia now from for some pretty cool you know stuff like i don't know you know guts in the giant forest and guts you know in the strange you know places there's, there's many things that they could go on before they reach uh, falconia and i also think given the way he's built up uh you know uh, griffith's uh his lieutenants you know like I, I don't think they'll just be skipped and, you know, mm-hmm. go straight on or that they'll just all be killed at once or anything like that. I think they deserve more of a personal send-off and uh, I imagine Mira intends to give them one. So, I don't know. I, I think there will be some uh, buffer between, you know, Elfham and Falconia. But, well, yeah, not only that, but they could even, you know, they've kind of done this a little bit, but they could even have a portion of the story if Mira wanted where they sort of become a team of, you know, sort of supernatural you know monster hunters you know <laughs> something where, i mean it sounds silly when i put it that way but you know something where they're going around to these different towns that have been afflicted in different ways by how the world is sure. changed. enoch village part two yeah yeah it's sort of so an alternative to dealing with it other than just going to falconia you know where they kind of are spoiling the plan in a very you know gorilla kind of way where they're kind of nullifying the need for falconia being you know the only sure. place when they I arrive back we, on the go ahead, go ahead, Azil, you had something more. Yeah, I was just gonna say I think there's going to be uh, some commentary on that, on the fact of war and everything. But like, I I don't think there's much in people to left to be saved. You know, like the ultimate fanboy scene would be for guts and his friends to arrive to the Bakirakas camp. You know, where there's <laughs> ones, the last ones holding out. You know. And uh, and they have them out. That's like do the like do the Dutch. Yeah, and, from Predator. Uh, <laughs> yeah, do they do that? <laughs> like you son of a bitch. <laughs> Been pushing pencils too much. Well, you know that would be as yeah, that would be pretty cool. But uh, yeah, <laughs> you know. Selat falling on, you know, he's on his back. Something is gonna kill him, and then you know, Gus uh, kills the thing, 
And he says exactly the same thing he told Casca, you know, uh, when he saved her from Silat, you know, in Volume 9. You know, that kind of shit. Yeah. <laughs> Fun stuff to look forward to. And honestly, you know, I've I've kept mostly quiet during this stuff because, like, I've... I have fun speculating, but I really try not to stretch my brain for that because I, I do still, and Azil's going to scoff at me for this, but I do still sort of want to be surprised about some parts oh. of the story. <laughs> oh boy, oh boy. Are we going into that now? No, no, we don't have time for that this time. Because I think like you've just handed me over my victory. So. <laughs> no one else no one else on the conversation or even listening has yeah. any idea what I'm talking about. Yeah. Me and Azil got in a argu- an argument with a discussion about spoilers and my feeling about spoilers being different from most people. So <clears throat> um, we just don't have time to get into it today. I meant to do it when we started, but we didn't do it. So anyway, needless to say uh, – that's the end of our show. We're a little bit past. So thanks for tuning in this long and we'll be back in a couple of weeks to finish out volume 15. I uh, don't expect another episode of Berserk until uh, later in August, uh, April. I think it's 427, 424 is the next opportunity for an episode. I'm guessing probably more like May or June, but who knows? Who knows? So once again, thanks guys. And we'll hear you later. See ya. Bye.